You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. In this episode, we will spoil The Sixth Sense. We will spoil Psycho. We will spoil Scream. And we will even spoil Titanic. Other films will be mentioned, but don't worry, we'll be good. The actual spoilers will never be revealed. And with that said, welcome back everyone. I'm Chris, and as you might have guessed, this episode is all about spoilers. How do we feel about them? Do spoilers actually have the power to spoil films? Could even knowing that there is something spoilable in a film hurt the viewing experience? Is it actually the case that it's always best to go into a film blind? And to what lengths do I and my co-hosts go to avoid spoilers? To top it all off, we will have an in-depth discussion of The Crying Game, which is, shall we say, quite famous for having a twist. Three of my co-hosts have just watched it, two for the very first time, and we will explore the topic of how knowing the spoiler or just knowing there is a spoiler can affect how we view a film. With me today are four wonderful co-hosts, Clem. Yes, hello, this is Clem from France. I'm happy to be back and I'm really looking forward to talk about spoilers with you all. Tom? Hi, this is Tom from England. I'm extremely sensitive to spoilers, so I'm looking forward to seeing what my co-hosts have to say on the uh, same topic. Sol? Hi, I'm Sol from Australia. I watched uh, Seven Samurai for the first time today, and I'm really interested in discussing today's topic to see if, like with Seven Samurai, it will make me change my mind about some movies that maybe I have not seen yet. I'm so happy Sol finally saw Seven Samurai. There's the fantastic title from last week's episode about films we haven't actually seen. And also, finally, for the very first time, I'm really happy to welcome Adam. Not to be confused with our producer Adam from Scotland. This is a brand new Adam from New York. So take it away, Adam. Introduce yourself. This is Adam from New York City. A longtime listener, first-time participant. I'm very excited to be here and to talk about spoilers and plot twists and Many, many movies that may or may not contain both. All right. Great to have you on board, Adam. So let's just get straight into it and answer the question. How do we feel about spoilers? And we can start with Clem. My opinion about spoilers have changed a lot over the years. When I first started watching films about eight, nine years ago, I was mostly watching them for the stories. So for me, if a film was spoiled, if I knew the ending, if I knew the twist, there were no reason to watch this film anymore. When I started watching more films and uh, as years go by, I realized that film is not only about the story. It's about the visuals. It's about how the film is made. It's a lot of different things combined and the story is only one of them. So I started being a bit less turned off if I knew the story or if I knew the ending or if I knew the twist because I realized that, well, there are other things that we should be looking for in a film than just the story. 
Was there any particular film that made you get over this, or was it just a natural evolution? I think it was just a natural evolution, I would say. Maybe we will discuss this film later on, but I was a really big fan of Fight Club as a teenager, which is a, a film that, well, let's say, has some kind of twist. And I rewatched this film a few times and realized that, well, even though I knew the story very well, even though I knew what was happening, I still could enjoy it very much. So I realized that, well, even knowing the story and knowing the twist, there are still a lot of things you can look for in a film to, to enjoy. So, Tom, how do you feel about spoilers? I'm quite sensitive when it comes to spoilers. I love nothing more than watching a film with little knowledge of how it's going to pan out and just allowing the director to take me on an adventure, surprise me, shock me. And I find that knowing as little as possible really helps this. So I will try to avoid reading about a film beforehand. I will actively avoid watching trailers. When I'm in the cinema about to watch a film, if a trailer comes on for something that I haven't seen but intend to see, I have been known to close my eyes, look away, because, as I said, I like going in knowing as, as little as possible. I will rarely read reviews, films that I'm interested in before watching them. And I just find it, it's better to trust in the, in the filmmakers that I, I know I enjoy and go along with the rides. And as I said, I love being surprised. I think you bring up a pretty good point there. Even just watching this trailer can spoil almost the entire film in terms of just showing you scenes all throughout the film, which context they're in, where they are. Uh, like Even spoilers of classic films, like most of the modern trailers of Stalker show the final scene, like the final shot in its entirety. So that's, that's pretty ridiculous. And that's the trend you see in almost all new films now. So if you are sensitive to spoilers, I think that's a really good move. Without naming the film in question, there was a trailer I watched uh, recently for a film and it's about two people and there's a, a shot in the film where it was just showing one of the persons on their own clearly shot towards the end of the film and things like that can just give you an idea of what's going to happen and then you've always got it in the back of your mind that something's going to happen to this character. Why aren't they there in that shot? That was beautifully cryptic, Tom. So, going on to Saul, how do you feel about spoilers? It was quite interesting listening to Clem talk about reading up as little as possible about films before seeing them when he first got into them. I first got into movies around 18 or 19 years ago. I'd actually read up quite a bit about them beforehand because I had just such limited knowledge of films were out there. So I'd usually read a few reviews, long reviews like Harley Wells type style reviews, short reviews, or like from Melton's Film Guide before I actually sat down and watched it. Uh, as things have progressed along, though, it's got to the point where I try to get as little as possible about a film before watching it. I like Tom's description of it being an adventure and being ready for the filmmaker to shock and surprise you. So I try and read up as little as possible. I really like going to films blind. Often with big films that come out from acclaimed filmmakers, I will not read up anything about it. I'll just know that it's a good director. So I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch it just based on the director or maybe based on the genre. If it's a horror or sci-fi film, we'll just go in and see it. Trailers are a tricky one, especially if you're going to the cinema and going to the cinema for me is usually a bit of a social thing. So I can't just you know, close my eyes and put my hands over my ears without, you know, looking a bit strange and a bit weird. But uh, trailers 
sometimes you can't avoid them. They do toy with your expectations. So I try and avoid them as much myself, except if it's something where I don't think I'm going to see it. Sometimes it's actually interesting watching the trailer. Like I've still got a large VHS collection. Sometimes when I'm fast forwarding through, there'll be a trailer and just as it's playing, I'm not recognizing the film. So I go, well, maybe I actually will watch this just to see what the film is for. Usually I can work out what the film is for without watching the trailer. But if I can't, sometimes it's interesting. Your trailers aren't great for playing with expectations unless you get something like a Thomas Anderson film. And I remember, I don't know how often it's happened, but definitely with Phantom Thread, there were quite a few shots in the trailer for that that didn't actually make into the final film. And I can't remember if PTA did it on purpose or not. But it is interesting about the effects that a trailer can play with expectations. But yeah, in general, um, as Tom said, I just like to be able to trust the filmmaker and go in and see the film for myself and see what it's like. I have to say, now I just have this picture of you in a cinema with your hands just trying to cover your uh, eyes and ears, singing or screeching so you don't hear the sound with every other person looking at you. It's a fantastic, fantastic visual. Yeah, well, that's what I'd like to be able to do, but I know that I socially can't do it. Though the most interesting ones actually when I'm in the car and a trailer comes up on the radio, I sometimes try and turn the volume down and sort of like wait 30 seconds and then put the volume back up. That sounds like something that I would do, Sol, and um, I'm quite pleased that I'm not the only one who goes to such extreme lengths to avoid a film being spoiled for me. Uh, I would also like to mention that I dislike trailers very, very much. Uh, it's actually one of the reasons I well, stopped going to cinema because uh, here we have about 20, 25 minutes of trailers before the actual film starts. And well, most of them are very obviously repetitive. And uh, as I said before, some show all the good parts of a film. And well, it does the complete opposite. Uh, because the trailer should make you want to go and see the film. And well, for some film, it looks like that all the good parts can be just resumed in a 1 minute 30 video. So then for me, there is well, pretty much no reason to go and uh, see that film. And it's also because most of the time those films are, you know, very you know, big blockbusters type of films. So we need to show uh, action films, explosions, stuff like that, So which is something I'm not very interested in. And another problem, I think, with trailers is that most of the time they fail to capture the essence of what the film really is about. Because, well, as I said before, the main goal is to make people want to go see the film, even by, by any means possible. So sometimes it includes even lying to the spectator uh, by make, putting uh, scenes that are actually not in the final film, as Sol uh, mentioned for the Phantom Thread, I think. So yeah, I think traders are a very bad thing. It's an interesting point mentioned about trailers and them being misleading. A good example I can think of from recent times was I, Tonya, which is actually a really good film, but the way I was advertised, it kept coming up the good fellas of ice skating movies. And all the way that the trailers were cut together made me expect this uh, really witty Goodfellas type of film, which it actually isn't. If I can just jump in for a moment to defend trailers, I have usually in the past really enjoyed them and really enjoyed them as part of the cinema-going experience. I completely admit the potential for them to spoil the movie, and I think there are certainly trailers that basically tell you most of what's going to happen in the movie and often contain a lot of the best scenes, especially when it's a comedy 
uh, sometimes if it's not a good comedy, they somehow manage to stuff 80 or 90% of the good jokes into the trailer. But in trailers was essential part of the appeal of, of going to the cinema throughout most of my life. In recent years, I've become very tired of them because they do go on forever. 25 minutes is, sounds about right. And I've often seen the trailer already because now you can get it on the internet. But uh, I always enjoy trailers as an art form in itself. They are their own particular type of short films. And I really enjoy trailers also that uh, do something more than just try to summarize the movie. And there are some classics in this genre. I think of the original trailer for Clockwork Orange, the trailer for The Social Network. And oddly enough, uh, it's forgotten among most people, but the really mediocre car heist movie, Gone in 60 Seconds, if you go back and look at the trailer, it was considered quite revolutionary. That being said, yes, it can spoil the movie, and no one likes that. I'd just like to jump in on the same defense of trailers, which is that some trailers can be absolutely fantastic in their own right. I mean, I'm not sure if this is embarrassing or not to admit, but I very often revisit Wes Anderson trailers because they just highlight so many of the details and why I love those films. And they're just really fun experiences in their own right. There's also some really fantastic trailers that are just genuinely inspired or even just additional material that was never used in the film, such as, I'm not sure if you guys have seen uh, Real Life by uh, Albert Brooks, but the trailer is essentially the same character trying to pretend it's so real that it's in 3D, and it's essentially just playing around with 3D glasses and it looks absolutely terrible. It's not used for a film, it's just him talking about how fantastic the film is in the same obnoxious character, and it works so incredibly, incredibly well. I never looked at trailers this way, I have to say, so it was interesting. I, I never actually heard someone talk about how they like traders, so it was interesting uh, hearing uh, you, Adam, and Chris talk, uh, talk about them this way. Uh, I was wondering, because the films you mentioned, I, I think Adam mentioned The Clockwork Orange, uh, Gone in 60 Seconds, I was wondering if it has something to do with when the film was released. Maybe older traders were... Um, well, done in a different way. And nowadays, trailers are done in a very um, show-it-all way, let's say. And all the trailers were more, uh, I don't know, made, maybe better done. They left more out of it. They didn't really cut together that many things. They would usually focus on some characters and some early scenes or something that was dramatic. And often with a really, really frustrating and dull narrator giving you some idea of why it was so suspenseful or why you had to see it. But that's pretty much it. They weren't, uh, they, they weren't anything like the ones we see today. Of course, it depends a little bit about which era we're talking about, too. So after turning the, essentially the entire podcast to be all about trailers, I think it would be really fun to finally move on to Adam and hear a little bit about how he feels about spoilers. Uh, I am not a fan of spoilers. Not at all. Spoiler ultimately provides the opportunity to destroy the narrative tension in the movie. And there are movies that can survive that. Uh, there are some movies that don't hurt by that at all. Uh, some movies where the narrative might be beside the point or maybe not as important. So a spoiler might not ruin every movie, but it has the potential to ruin a lot of movies. I think a, a great way of evaluating a spoiler is to sort of talk about history movies. Movies based on history that's widely known or at least known particularly to you. Uh, these are movies that I very much enjoy. I'm a big fan of the history movie genre. But when I see them, I always joke, you know, I, I go see a history movie and then I joke with my brother about it. He says to me, what do you think of Pearl Harbor? And I said, well, 
didn't really like it. And I kind of felt like I knew it was going to happen the whole time. You know, the whole first half of the movie, I had this weird suspicion the Japanese were going to attack. I don't know why. Uh, that was a joke, but this is something that the history genre suffers from. Uh, the question is, even if you know the outcome of Pearl Harbor, uh, can you enjoy the narrative that's presented within the movie that leads up to that point? I think in some ways, having a spoiler from a movie forces you to confront how interesting, enjoyable, or compelling a movie is if the narrative is known. And when the narrative is known, you can enjoy the movie because of elements not associated with the narrative. You can enjoy it for the performance, for the dialogue, for music, for camera work, so on and so forth. Nevertheless, I think most movies suffer from being spoiled, and certainly if the spoiler goes as far as a plot twist, then uh, it can really detract from the movie-going experience. I think that's an interesting point about uh, historical films, though in that case, part of the excitement or part of like, the build-up, I suppose, is how they will deal with X event or how they will present X historical figure that you may or may not have some impression uh, about. So that can be really interesting in its own right. I think maybe even a better example is um, Downfall, the, the Bruno Gans movie about Hitler's final days. That's a movie where everyone knows the outcome, but the appeal of the movie is, is really Bruno Gans's performance and his depiction of Hitler in his final days, which I think is an incredible performance. So that's an example of where everyone knows the outcome, but I think the movie really stands up. I'm reminded of the final scene of uh, Blackadder as well, Blackadder going forth which uh, I'm not going to spoil for the people who haven't seen it yet, but it has a fun and somewhat sad pun about what date it is and what they believe is going to happen on this date. And of course, we also have some films that gain specifically from real events, like that scene in uh, The Best Picture Winner, Calvicade, where you know they pan to the name of the boat and it's Titanic or the uh, opening to Vanity Fair, where people are having a party and they pan to the sign that says in Waterloo. So there are some ways to also play off historical events so that you know what is coming and it's part of the story. Just to move on and to include myself in this, I think that I do have some problems with spoilers. I don't, the narrative is usually not what is most important for me, but especially if there's a twist, it can genuinely ruin a part of the experience because if you do not know the twist or the spoiler in question, you will actually be able to have two fundamentally different experiences, at least if it's done well. Like you will get the first experience the very first time you see it and you have that visceral reaction to seeing events you had not expected. You see the plot entirely turn uh, on its head. And you may, if done incredibly well, sit there in shock, try to understand how this happened, the logic leading up to it. And then on your second viewing, you will actually be able to, going in, be able to trace all of the clues that leads up to the reveal. And both of those are essentially first time experiences. So that's what's really lost when you spoil a film in this way. This is essentially like what happens in Sixth Sense, which obviously was spoiled to me. I think every single person in the world knows that Bruce Willis was dead the entire bloody time. 
And going in then, you could see all of the really, really obvious clues. And you were wondering when it would be revealed. And you were wondering how it would be revealed. And so much looked so obvious. And so much felt so flat. And it was actually only then until my rewatch of it that I gained more respect for it. Because then I had, essentially, it would be the third viewing in that sense. Like I had the experience of seeing what would happen for myself and then I could judge it more in terms of how it was made, how it was done, without paying more attention to how the twist would develop. It's interesting to hear you mention The Sixth Sense because that's a film that I have actually, I checked it, I've actually watched it four times now. I found that the more and more I rewatch it, the worse it actually gets. And the plot actually makes no sense in a number of key scenes. And you know that he's dead when you know that nobody else can communicate with him. Uh, yeah, a lot of it doesn't add up. And I've kept rewatching it, I guess, you know, four times in um, 20 years because people have kept saying, oh, you know, go back to it, give it another shot again. But no, it just, get, just falls down further and further in my esteem. No, I can definitely see that. I think the more times you will see it, the more you will start thinking about everything in between as well. As in what happens after that one shot ends? How was this setup actually logical? Like, how much did this person actually see? And, and how come he was living with his wife for so many months as a ghost without realizing that she never, ever, ever spoke to him? Yeah, there's stuff about how yeah, Bruce Willis is getting by without realizing as a ghost. There's also some of the stuff which Haley Joel Osment says to him, which is just ridiculous. He says things like, I've got this secret or something like this, please don't tell anyone. And yet Osment surely knows that he's a ghost and therefore he's got no ability to tell anyone. So I have that line in there. And then, you know, to set it up to make it more interesting for a first time viewer. And I know what you're saying, that the more times you watch a film, you're going to pick up more and more things that don't work. But then you look at the uh, best of films, the uh, big twists in there, like Vertigo or Scream. And especially with Scream, I can watch that multiple times. I think up to six or more viewings. And knowing the twist, knowing who Ghostface is, it just gets better and better each time. So I see all the different subtle hints that Wes Craven has put in there to show us who the killers are without it being obvious to a first-time viewer. I think you're perfectly right there, Saul, that the very best films just get better the more and more times you see it because you pick up all of the additional details that you didn't see. And this is what I mentioned in terms of last year at Marimbaud 2, is that every single time you see it, you pick up a new interpretation, a new little detail, a new little line that means something else and it can change the entire thing. And it's similar in Vertigo 2 in that there's always so many different things to consider and so many more things to take on board. Since uh, Sol mentioned the angle of what I guess you could call watchability, specifically with regard to a movie that might have a twist or something really unexpected, I think there are some cases where it can be a benefit. So one of the appeals is when you're watching a movie with a twist for the second or third or fourth time is you can sort of look for clues along the way that hint at it, which is what I think a lot of people have done over the past week rewatching the time game. The potential drawback for any rewatching experience, though, is that you also start noticing those plot holes that maybe weren't very obvious there uh, the first time you saw it. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. And uh, I think it would explain why a lot of films that only rely on the final twist or the ending gets well it gets worse and worse after a rewatch because 
they only have one part of the film that they really really worked on and the rest was just it sometimes it feels like the rest were just made to to be there just to pass the time while we get to the final 10-15 minutes that should you know blow everyone's mind and when you watch a film for the first time usually you remember mostly the beginning and the ending and some parts in the middle and if the ending blows you away with the twist for example it's very easy for you to be like, okay, well, that, that was actually a great film. But when you rewatch it and start looking at it more carefully and more in more details, you start noticing, well, in some cases, you start noticing details that doesn't doesn't add up, as was mentioned in The Sixth Sense, for example, or just scenes that are, well, unneeded or not very interesting. And when you know the final scene and you know what uh, the ending is, some films seem very bland and unoriginal and very, very average. I think you just described the entire career of M. Night Shyamalan there. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I have only seen The Sixth Sense from him. So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know about the rest of his filmography. But uh, I guess The Sixth Sense was, I knew, obviously I knew the ending when I first, uh, when I first watched it. It was still a fun experience. Um, as, well, I think I watched it a few years back when I, in the beginning, let's say, of my uh, movie-watching journey. So I was a little bit more impressed by uh, what I was watching back then. I was less uh, blasé than nowadays, let's say. Uh, so yeah, I don't know about the rest of this filmography, but uh, at least for The Sixth Sense, uh, yeah. On the first viewing, when you don't know much about films as I did, it was it was a fun experience. Gonna slag off the entirety of M. Night Shyamalan's career. Uh, Unbreakable is actually a genuinely great film, which works even knowing the twist. But uh, obviously, as uh, his career became more and more extreme, it really did start to feel like it was all building up to that one big twist and everybody knew it. Very thoroughly on Unbreakable being a really good film. It has got a twist in it, but I've seen it two or three times and it really gets me each time. There's really some real strong emotions in there between father and son. And yeah, it's a very powerful film. And yeah, as Shyman went along, I think some of his other films did get too bogged down in their twists. But he did a really good twist one recently called The Visit, about these children going to visit their grandparents' house. And their grandparents are acting really strangely. And it's unsettling them. And you're not quite sure why at first. And there is a twist in there. And when I watched it for the second time, I knew the twist going in, and I was still very captivated by it. I thought it was a really thoroughly compelling film, and very surprisingly, considering how lame a lot of M. Night Shyamalan's films have been over the years. I would also like to give a shout-out to Split, which I genuinely enjoyed. It was terribly well done, and what we could consider a twist there was, was actually quite fun. I like Split also. I thought that was very well done. Really great performance by uh, Anya Taylor-Joy in there. And also uh, Glass, the uh, spin-off, which actually brings Unbreakable and Split together, is a really good film with a really fun cameo by M. Night Shyamalan, which references his cameo appearance in Unbreakable. I think there's also an interesting... or I, I think there's also a bit of a conflict or a bit of a difference between knowing spoilers in terms of what happens in the plot and knowing spoilers that are no actual twists. Like if we look at the difference between, say, The Sixth Sense and Thelma and Louise, I mean, every single person more or less knows how Thelma and Louise ends. But 
that just heightens the anticipation, I suppose, in one way of the journey there, what happens there. But knowing an actual twist will actually change the entire way you look at the film. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, Thelma and Louise there, Chris, because uh, for me, that's a film where I knew the ending. I've known it for years. It's just one that seems to be discussed, mentioned quite frequently. So I had always put off watching it. And I actually watched it for the first time maybe two or three months ago. So it's a strange experience when you watch a film and you've already got the idea in the back of your head that knowledge of you know what's going to happen in the end. And to me, the film didn't really grab me anyway. So it wasn't really a huge disappointment that I knew what happens at the end. But it's, it is strange watching a film for the first time when you already know what's going to happen. It kills a lot of the excitement and you'll forever read in between the lines um, because you know how it's going to end. I thought I'd just mention with Thelma and Louise, like Tom, it's a film that I'd put off seeing for a number of years because I knew the ending. But I actually thought it was really interesting going into it, knowing that ending, like Chris said, it just, just gives that inevitability for their journey that, you know, this is going to happen to them, this is going to be the result matter what happens and I thought it was really interesting playing along seeing what the end result was going to be and knowing that going in sort of like the ending to Planet of the Apes being spoiled by the Simpsons so anybody who's grown up watching the Simpsons knows the ending to that and it was just uh, really great for me when I watched Planet of the Apes also for the first time knowing the ending being one step ahead of the child and instant character sort of knowing what's going to happen at the end of it before he does. I love Planet of the Apes, Sol. It's one of my favourite films, and I was lucky enough to watch it without knowing the end. So I enjoyed it as it was meant to be, and, you know, it, it blew me away. I just want to point out the spoiler for Planet of the Apes was actually printed on the cover of the film's DVD in a certain version, which I just think is a terrible piece of work that, you know, the people responsible for putting together a DVD cover would put the ending of the film on the cover. Um, yeah, that's pretty hilarious. So they put the uh, spoiler on there, but I guess if the film's considered to be that iconic, maybe there was an assumption that people already knew it. I think that's pretty much it. Uh, it, it speaks to just how well known that spoiler is. As, as in, to the makers of this cover, they just couldn't imagine that anyone didn't know the end. Another, another good example of everyone knowing the end nowadays uh, would be Titanic. Um, when you think of uh, Titanic, well, obviously it's based on a true story, so you know what you know what's happening at the end, based on the history. But uh, you don't know what happens to the two main characters. Uh, I forgot the name in, on the films, but uh, the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Kate Winslet. And well, when you think about the film, uh, one of the scenes you have in mind is toward the end when she is on this um, wood thing, and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is in the water. Um, so I, I guess it would be the same. We all know that, you know, he dies to save her, let's say, even though some uh, science experiments showed later on that he could have easily got on that and they could have both survived. What well, would have been a less romantic ending, obviously, but uh, technically it was possible. So yeah, I think it's, um, it also shows an interesting thing that some there are spoilers because of the ending and spoilers because of some twists. Uh, for example, Thelma and Louis, it's not very, it's not that much of a twist. It's more knowing the ending. Uh, on a film like The Sixth Sense, for example, it's the important thing is knowing the twist. So I think it's important to make this distinction between the two type of films and uh, spoilers. 
And of course, the ending there, the logic deployed there is just debated by every single person as well, just because that Driftwood clearly has enough room for both of them, leading to debates on just, is Rose just a complete asshole who wants Jack to die? Like, why didn't they take turns? Why, why, why? And then just, like, there's so many videos going into the logic of that. So many parodies, and it's... So yeah, I, I suppose that's another one that just everybody knows about at this point. The whole time I watched Titanic, I had this weird sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. I suppose we all have that sinking feeling, especially towards the end. Talking about films that are just so well known that everybody knows the key spoiler or key twist. I, I actually have one memory of watching Psycho. I already seen it at this point, but I was watching it in college. They put it on, you know, in our auditorium, and every single person was watching it. And it was really clear that a lot of the people seeing it didn't actually know the twist. So somehow the two twists, because there are two major twists in that film, or or, or one twist and one major event, that was really interesting to see and see them and actually enjoy it as as if they were watching it in the sixties, and they did genuinely enjoy it. So with a film like Psycho, if you said there's two twists in there, but if Janet Lee disappears in the first half of an hour or the first half of the film, do you then actually regard that as a twist or not? I think it's an interesting thing to consider. Well, well, I think it's one of the biggest shocks in cinema history, really, that you set up a character as the protagonist and then kill her off well before the first half is over. I, that's, I, I don't think that was ever really experienced before, especially since it was a relatively well-known. Everybody had an expectation of what that film was. In fact, it, it, it's kind of like the original From Dust to Dawn in that you're watching one film and it turns into something completely different. In fact, this, this is a genre-bending moment where you go from watching what you think is essentially a late film noir or a thriller about a woman who has stolen money into a horror film. And with the removal of that character, it's just such an incredible, unique thing to happen. Yeah, that's a good point. It reminds me of the uh, misdirection also at the beginning of Frenzy. I don't think it spoils it too much, but we spend about the first 20 minutes maybe following this one character who we expect to be the killer until Hitchhot pulls the rug from out from under our legs, and no, it's actually not him. It's another character that he has been following around. I think it's very important that we bring up uh, Psycho when we're discussing spoilers, because I love that um, Alfred Hitchcock himself uh, went out of his way to make sure that uh, cinema goers experienced his film as intended. Now, before Psycho came out, it was quite common practice for people to enter a cinema screen halfway through a film, watch the end of the film, and then stay around for the next showing to catch the beginning. Alfred Hitchcock sent out messages to all the cinemas to make sure that people were forbidden from entering the cinema after the film had started. I've got this little marketing clip that he, he sent out to the cinemas. I'm just going to read a bit out because I think it's great. He says, it is required that you see Psycho from the very beginning. Surely you do not have your meat course after your dessert at dinner. 
You will therefore understand why we are so insistent that you enjoy Psycho from start to finish, exactly as we intended that it be served. We won't allow you to cheat yourself. Every theatre manager everywhere has been instructed to admit no one after the start of each performance of Psycho. We said no one, not even the manager's brother, the President of the United States or the Queen of England. God bless her. I think it's important to um, think of that tactic that Hitchcock used, not just though as an attempt by a director to have his audience see his movie in its complete form rather than as a disjointed second half first type experience. It's also a publicity tactic. Um, at least that's my, my historical understanding of that moment was trying to build up the mystique of the movie. And it's interesting to note that Miramax did the exact same thing more than 30 years later with The Crying Game. They both Hitchcock with Psycho and Miramax with The Crying Game publicized to audiences this instruction, don't spoil the movie, don't reveal the secret. And I'm sure both parties very much did not want the secret to be spoiled. It was also a publicity campaign to build up a certain mystique around those movies. I've just looked it up, and it's actually interesting with uh, Psycho, the original tagline for it was don't give away the ending. It's the only one we have. So that's actually at a promotional level. Already the filmmakers are saying, well, it is going to be a twist to come. One other thing about Psycho that's interesting is that it does have these two twists, which means that people may know one of the things that happened in the film, but not the other. I.e., the most famous is the murder scene, where an unknown assailant, obviously hidden in shadow, stabs Lee in, um, in the shower. Uh, the blood circles into the drain. It's iconic. Everybody has that image. And of course, the Simpsons did it. Simpsons seems to really like to spoil films. However, there is, of course, the actual twist, which is both disturbing, shocking, and just as any good twist, changes the entire way we perceive the film, or at least perceive the main character of Norman Bates, which is, of course, that his mother is dead, and that he is acting out the crimes as her. He believes he is both himself and his mother. He switches between them. And you have that incredible final scene of him sitting at the police station, talking to himself, one voice his own, one voice his mother, and it is so unnerving to see. And taking me back to the screening at college with probably 50 or so other students, the majority of which had never seen Psycho, you could hear them whispering to each other and simply being completely stunned at this ending. I think the ending of Psycho is just as effective when you know that it's coming. I recently had the privilege of watching Psycho with a uh, live orchestra and that was a brilliant experience. And as Chris mentioned with his experience of it, it's great that you can tell those around you who are new to Psycho and have managed to avoid finding out how it ends because you can see the genuine reactions that uh, people have to such a startling experience. And watching it on a, in a theater with a live orchestra must add a lot to the experience, even though you 
know already know the film and already know the ending. Definitely, Clem. If I could watch all films with a live orchestra, I would. I've only seen a few like it in my time, but you know, if it's something that, as a film fan, any listeners haven't done, I would highly recommend it. Whether it's a film you love or one you've not seen, uh, watching a film with a live orchestra really adds a lot to the experience. But I gather the experience of the people who watch Psycho for the very first time without knowing at least one of the major spoilers related to that film. And what we all, or almost all of us, talked about at the very beginning about how we try to, or at least most of us try to, avoid trailers before going into films we don't know too much about them. Some of us even avoiding reading about films in its entirety and trusting the director so that the film in no way is spoiled and we can go into it with a completely blank slate and experience it as it was intended or is that the way films are actually intended are some films set up in such a way that you should have read up on it or should know something about it before going in what are the pros and cons of going into a film blind I think most people are going to speak on the pro side of going into a film blind. So I'm just going to take a chance to mention some of the con signs. I think that there are occasions where going into a film blind can hurt you. And I think especially the first time I saw Mulholland Drive, I was an 18-year-old college freshman, and I had not seen any David Lynch movie before. And I decided to watch Mulholland Drive actually with a girl I was interested in, which ended up being a mistake for numerous reasons. Um, it didn't help me with her, and I had no clue what the movie was all about. I had no idea what to expect from Lynch. I think that was an example of where if I'd had even just, you know, a short warning of what to expect from Lynch, read a review, I might have been better prepared to, one, maybe not choose this as the movie I want to see with this girl I was interested in. Even if I was going to see it, at least understand what the heck was going on. I think it's an interesting question whether we should read about a film before watching it or not. Uh, I think Adam mentioned uh, an interesting point by mentioning uh, Drive because it's a film that's, well, let, let's, for the sake of the argument, let's call it experimental. And I think that for some, for this type of film, for experimental films, like in general, it's it could be a good idea to first read about it to try to understand, well, not only what the film is about, but everything that's surrounding the film, maybe the, understand what the codes of the genre uh, are, uh, how the filmmakers wanted to make the film, the techniques that are used to make this type of films, because they're films that usually people are not used to see. But you're quite right, Clem, which is that a lot of the times when people watch certain films, even this is not even necessarily about going into a film blind in terms of plot, but going into a film blind in terms of what the director is known for, what the genre is known for, or even what the culture is known for. I mean, there are a lot of people who, for instance, will watch Japanese or Iranian films uh, without realizing, for instance, that they are protesting or in some way critiquing the society that they are in, such as, for instance, Usu, uh, or Narusa, or many of the classic Japanese filmmakers critiquing women's role in society, and many of the modern Iranian filmmakers doing exactly the same. 
And similar in terms of genre norms that are actually being thwarted, you might not actually realize that the film is being incredibly clever if you don't have certain experiences with that genre or with that culture, with that team, with the history before. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a lot of filmmakers like to put messages in their films. I, I think artists in general as as have always tried to put forward political or societal messages in their art form. So it's normal that a filmmaker does it as well. So yeah, definitely understanding the context in which a film is made, uh, understanding how the society works, and trying to understand well, what they want to call out could always be a, you know, a good idea for watching films. I think when you've watched so many films, it becomes harder and harder to find films that have the power to startle you, surprise you or, or shock you in such a way with, with the twists. And that for me is one of the main reasons why I avoid spoilers and, and reading about films beforehand, because I'm always seeking that reaction from a film. One thing that I love about film festivals is going in blind and just trusting that the films are on the slate for a reason. And I love sitting in the cinema having no idea of what I'm about to watch, but just going along with a ride because I know it's a genre that I love or, or by a filmmaker that I, I love. But conversely, once I have seen a film, I absolutely love delving back into the reviews that people have written about it. I'll even go as far as to watch the trailers as well. I'm always curious about that. And I love a good reason uh, to check out the uh, IMDb trivia section as well because there's always interesting information in there. And I think my aversion to spoilers has also greatly influenced my writing style when I review films, because I always try to give away as little as possible. But I also enjoy alluding to events without being too obvious. So I suppose the ideal goal for me when writing reviews is for whoever reads them to be able to dissect the nuances of my subtle hints about plot spoilers once they've seen the film in question, but not to give away anything if they haven't seen the film. I think that's a great point. I, I also try to do more or less the same. In fact, if I write or talk about the film, I try to invoke the kind of feelings it created in me or the kind of atmosphere it was building or the kind of things it achieves rather than actually talk about specific plot points uh, because that can obviously, in, in some cases, uh, hurt the experience for some people. It's an interesting question about whether there are some films that we should enter into completely blind things like Mulholland Drive you should know it's another David Lynch films like beforehand perhaps but that's still narrative cinema I'm thinking more along something like Corpus Colossum that was actually the first Michael Snow film that I ever saw going into that other than knowing that it was an experimental film I knew absolutely nothing about it and it was mind-blowing for me because I didn't know what to expect with my as he was playing with film form having different images over other images other different effects it was a really interesting experience. So I'd say most films, even on the more experimental side, unless you're taking it along for a first date, which you want to be a romantic date, if it's just something you're watching for yourself. I think most films are better left unspawned and going into completely blind. Unless it's a historical film. I found with some historical films or films that are set a bit in the past, filmmakers assume a little bit of general knowledge, which you may or may not have. So I've sometimes found with certain films I've needed to stop and look up and discover a bit more about what was going on at the time to fully grasp what was actually happening in the story. I thought I might also mention with reviews, because I write quite a few reviews also, 
that like Tom, like Chris, I try and avoid putting plot spoilers in there. I do try and also, yeah, allude to things that are going on in my general impression. I might talk about certain plot turns to come, but I try and avoid saying that word twist because I know some people, as soon as you say plot twist, they go, oh, you've already spoiled the film for me. I think some films it is really good to not go into blind are films that in some subtle way try to show how something happened or how some atmosphere that was around a specific time without openly saying something. Then the most obvious case, of course, would be Michael Haneke's White Ribbon. If you don't realize that they're alluding to the rise of Hitler, uh, you will maybe struggle a little bit with that film. There's, there's also films that are catering to historical events that maybe certain viewers won't know. For instance, there is a really popular, really famous film from Spain called Butterfly's Tongue, which takes place, I think, around the years 1935 and 1936 in Spain. And knowing those years, you obviously know what's going to happen and what's going to end up. But if you don't know Spanish history that well, and you follow this little kid around this peaceful town, and you hear some people talk about certain political events, you might have no idea what's going to happen. But obviously, knowing what will happen or will have to happen just within a few months is essential to really get the full experience out of that film. And there are many other films like that, which just set their story in a specific time, but then assume that you will know either because they were made specifically in a time and this was specifically relevant or because it's set in a country where everyone will know their own history and is not really necessarily expecting audiences to not be aware of this. Interesting films that have come to mind on the whole idea of knowing history before going into them would be Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and actually watched the latter with some people who were not sure exactly what happened to Sharon Tate, which had some interesting discussions afterwards. Those films really benefit if you know the historical context. Also, something like Amadeus is really interesting because I've talked to a lot of people who have watched the film and have sort of gone and reacted like, oh, you know, that's what Mozart was like. Whereas the film's actually this exaggerated portrait through the mind of a madman. And if you don't sort of know what Mozart was really like going into Amadeus, you sort of come away with a false um, historical perception of it. And it also makes the film less dynamic if you're watching Amadeus going, oh, it's completely factual, rather than going, oh, we're just seeing these delusions here and these exaggerated portrayals in his mind. A really great point as well. Um, and this also ties in with genre expectations. There are certain films that will not necessarily tell you exactly what genre conventions they will be playing for, exactly which atmosphere they're going for at the very beginning. In which case, it might be, say, assessing the first 5, 10, 50 minutes wrongly. And this may either be a surprise, in which case it works perfectly, or it, it may be the case that all the promotional material, trailers, etc., were expected to have set up the expectations of the film so well that they didn't have to say it out loud. To give just one additional example of a film that I noticed that some people had a problem with going into blind. And that is the, the recent film Transit, which is, I believe, Chris, Christian Petzold's latest film. He might have done something for this year, but 
uh, it was released in 2018. And this is not a spoiler, this is something that essentially everyone should know. But if you do not realize that this film is imagining the Nazi occupation of France, but set in the present day, you may struggle a bit, especially at the beginning. I think myself and most of the people going in knew that simply from the reviews of what people were saying about the film. But I have no idea how I would have reacted to the early setup if I didn't know that this is what was taking place. And especially if we didn't know the additional information that this is simply a straight adaptation from books set in the 40s with no real alterations except for the clothes, weapons, etc. And it just makes it so much more satisfying knowing these little tricks because you know you're essentially participating in a slow brooding taught experience of placing yourself in a situation where this is reality today. How would you react today? And it's just such an interesting and beautiful experience knowing that. I mean, it's just, just to be the word, it's beautifully vague. It's like a tragic dream. And if I had to first realize that this is what it was doing, like, I'm not sure how I would have reacted. If you watch a lot of Petzold films, he's a director who's incredibly, incredibly good at creating the minimalist thrillers. He's really good at building atmosphere, but the actual plots of them, what he's actually communicating, often feels very tin. But in this film, he combines you know, his masterful man of the camera and of building atmosphere with a really interesting philosophical thought experiment that just makes it one of 2018's greatest films. And moving on to our final topic in today's podcast, three of my co-hosts have rewatched The Crying Game. Tom knowing the spoiler going in, some simply knowing that there was a twist of some kind. And I'm really excited to hear them talk a little bit about their experiences here. I want to go back to something Saul said earlier about how knowing a twist is in a movie can itself be a spoiler. And this is something I strongly, strongly agree with. I saw The Crying Game back in 2006. And I'd been warned by several people, my mother especially, that there was a surprise in the movie, that there was a twist. I should keep my eyes open for the twist. I like a movie, a good movie with a twist. But I was very unsatisfied with the experience as a result. I spent the entire movie waiting for the twist. And when it came to the point where the twist actually happened, when the gender identity of Dill was revealed, I didn't recognize it was the twist. I was told the twist was included. I was thinking something along the lines of Fight Club or The Usual Suspects, where Everything we have seen up to that point is revealed in some sense to be a lie. I didn't think revelation that Dill was a trans woman was a twist. So up until the last moments of the movie, I was still watching, expecting a twist to happen. I was watching this shootout at the end with the IRA thinking, is this the twist? And I think it truly did win the movie for me. Now, I saw this in 2006, not when it was released in 1992. In 1992, I was seven years old. I think maybe if I'd seen it in 1992, it would have been a twist for me. It would have been a surprise. I think I probably would have just been slightly confused. 
And I guess that the whole idea of transgender identity, queer identity was differently accepted in 2006 than 1992. Even then, I'm, I'm, I'm a little disappointed, I guess, with 1992 audiences, seeing this as such a shocking moment. Transgenderism had been a long established trope in American movies. I think it's more a, a product of that Miramax publicity campaign that I mentioned earlier, rather than actual surprise at the movie. By the time I saw it in 2006, at which point I was 22 years old, it didn't seem very surprising. I don't want to pretend I'm some, this incredibly cosmopolitan person who just knew about transgenderism. I just don't think, didn't think at that time that that was such a surprising twist. That, oh, someone we thought was a woman was in fact a trans woman. This big reveal, you know, uh, Dill has a penis should not be too shocking. 50% of us do. Um, so that really, that really ruined the movie for me, being on tenterhooks the entire time, expecting this twist to occur. It's interesting that Adam mentions that uh, the revelation perhaps shouldn't be uh, shocking for an audience in uh, 1992. Um, because I was actually watching an interview with uh, some of the cast members and the directors yesterday of the uh, Crying Game, and they explained that it was an incredibly difficult film to secure finance for, um, not just because of the gender implications, but also due to the interracial relationship. And obviously, we'd like to think that we live in a forward-thinking world and society where stories like this, you know, were are made quite easily. But there was a lot of difficulties at the time. And um, another concern that the filmmakers had was that the press would divulge the big twist. And that was a, a great concern when they were going in and, and when they actually got greenlit to make the project. I just thought it was really interesting that Adam didn't know that the twist was that Dill was a woman, because that's something that I'd known about since, I guess, as long as I'd been into cinema. A. Davidson got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor, and some of the people I talked to on the IMD message board said the Oscar nominations actually ruined the film for them because they knew at that point she had male genitalia and was trans. Uh, I watched The Crane Game last night, actually, so it's still fresh in my mind. When we were preparing this episode a few days back, uh, we were talking about films we would mention, and I don't remember who told the fir first about the crying game. I didn't knew at all there was some kind of twist in the crying game. I knew about it. I didn't knew at all there was a, a twist in it. Saul was actually very surprised that I didn't knew because according to him, it's one of the most uh, famous twists in uh, cinema history. And I, I started thinking about it because I knew I would watch it for this podcast. And I started thinking and be, well, since I'm going to probably defend the point that spoilers are not that important for me, maybe I should just seek out what the twist is, what the ending is, what the spoil is, and see how my viewing experiment would be changed by knowing that. And what Sol did is that he actually wrote the, the twist, hiding it under spoiler tags in the chat, and he was like, well, open it at your own risk. Uh, and I... I think it took me about uh, four, four or five minutes before I just gave up and uh, looked under the spoiler tags. I don't know if it was intentional or not. I think it was, but he wrote it backwards, the spoiler backwards. He said that uh, instead of uh, saying that, uh, you know, there is a, a woman that turned out to be a transgender, he said that one of the guy is actually a woman. And so I went into the film uh, thinking that it was actually a twist. 
And so I spent my first, uh, maybe 40 first minutes of the film thinking that uh, Fergus, the character, was actually a woman before. So I started looking for uh, clues and uh, I actually even found some elements that, uh, well, according to me, would could implicate that he was actually uh, a woman. And, uh, well, I, it's later on when he met um, the girl and uh, then I started understanding and be like, well, yeah, Saul probably just uh, yeah misled me and uh, well told me a wrong wrong spoiler. That's absolutely hilarious, Clem. I did write it backwards and even think about it, and um, it's hilarious you to find all these clues going to um other Stephen Ree character being a woman. That wasn't intentional. You you really wrote it backward without thinking about it. Yeah, no, I did write it backwards. It's it funny. So I wonder if like, giving the wrong spoiler. Can also toys one's expectations of a film. Oh, the clever, a really hilarious story of someone that heard that at the end of Citizen Kane, we were told what Rosebud referred to. And this person was genuinely convinced that Rosebud was the person who had killed Kane and went through the entire <laughs> film, <laughs> the entire film, expecting this twist. <laughs> Yeah, that, that would have been a great ending, actually, if uh, Kane was actually killed by Rosebud. That would have been an amazing ending. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, going back on the crying game now, the film in itself didn't do much for me, I would have to say. I, I think, o- overall, the story is not that original. Uh, I think it, it feels like, you know, we've seen it before, you know, two soldiers talking to each other, one of them passed away, and uh, the other one goes to the um, girlfriend of the dead soldier and start a love relationship. I, I think the interesting part was obviously, well, the political uh, context that the film was made in, which I, uh, I'm not familiar with at all, so I won't uh, want to talk about that. The film was nicely, nicely shot. Uh, I thought it was interesting, uh, the contrast between the first uh, 40 minutes uh, of the film with uh, Forrest Winterker and uh, Fergus and the rest of the film. It actually sometimes feel, feels like two different films, the first one being a more um, very war film theme and the second one being this more romantic film. So I thought it was a, I thought it was interesting to see that the filmmaker was able to make two films in one, let's say. Uh, I thought it shows that um, well, he has talent and is able to do uh, more than one type of film. Uh, but yeah, as I said before, knowing the twist didn't really uh, change my uh, viewing expectation. I think that even if I didn't knew, I would have been, well, surprised uh, what the twist is. But I don't think it would have made my uh, viewing experience a- any better. I sat down for first time last night and watched The Crying Game, knowing the twist. I knew that going into the film. What I was not, what I was surprised about, what I was not prepared for, was how early on it's revealed. It's not revealed super early into the movie, but it's revealed out and actually checked on my DVD one hour and one minute into the film. So 45 minutes left to go. I actually think most of the second half of the film was actually about the ramifications of the twist. And I thought it actually turned, like Clem said, it becomes a romance film. I thought it actually became a really sweet love story. It's about the um, Stephen Ree character, Fergus or Jimmy, whatever you want to refer to him, actually learning to love Dill for who Dill is rather than just who he thinks Dill is. I thought that was actually uh, really beautiful how it turned around like that. And yeah, it is sort of two stories in one. I really like the camaraderie to begin off with between the Forrest Whitaker character and the Stephen Ree character. 
thought that was really great and I really liked the way that it turned around. I know it's sort of a bit familiar that, you know, he's going to romance the soldier's um, wife or girlfriend who he knows from before. Just the different ways that the plot evolved along with the Miranda Richardson character coming back. It's sort of like the IRA past of the Stephen Ree character is coming back to haunt him. And he has to sort of grapple with that past while also grappling with falling in love with Dill. So he's reassessing himself and go, well, maybe Dill doesn't need to have a vagina. Maybe I actually see her as a woman and maybe I actually really love Dill. So he's reassessing who he is. He's also trying to reassess who he's thought he is in the past. Like he's gone to this point going, oh, well, you know, I'm not gay or whatever, which is why you have that reaction when he first sees the uh, penis and he goes and he vomits. But what's really important during that part of the film is that the camera stays with Dill. It stays on Dill's face while he's vomiting in the background. And uh, he rushes out of the room and the camera stays on Dill. It doesn't follow uh, Jimmy or Fergie out of the room as he runs out. So it's all about getting it from her point of view. And I thought that was really refreshing and really interesting. And just the way everything developed along, it became about him reconciling who he is himself and what his nature is, which is one of the important things which Forrest Whitaker tells him towards the beginning. You know, it's in my nature. And the whole course of the film was about the Stephen Reed character reassessing his nature. Is he this IRA assassin? Is he this contract killer of sorts? Is he someone who's able to love a trans woman? And that's where it sort of progresses along. And I just love the way the film sort of ends with him in the prison and him recounting the Forrest Whitaker character's story till at the end. I thought it was really a beautiful film. Uh, really gave a really strong message in terms of, um, you know, love transcending what we commonly think it might be. I, I strongly agree with with Saul's evaluation of the movie. Someone has, has already said there's a lot going on here, but at the heart of the movie, I think there are two themes. One is uh, it's a love story. But also, it's a story of self-discovery for Stephen Rees character. And when the movie focuses on those two elements, I think it really prospers a lot. I think the the political angle, the third act when the IRA comes back into the story is where things start to go a little off the rails. And uh, I mentioned to this group earlier that I did not enjoy the movie as much on my rewatch yesterday as I did when I originally saw it in 2006. I think maybe because I wasn't sitting around the whole movie expecting a twist, I was better able to evaluate what makes the movie good, what are its strengths and what are its weaknesses. I think the IRA thing is a little bit of a weakness, but just those parts of it and with the Miranda Richardson character and the other character, I wasn't quite sure how that was going down. Like they seem to really be interested in getting the um, Stephen Reed character to go out and do that like hit on that man towards the end. And the guy suddenly gets out of his car and he realizes he's not turning up. And he goes and shoots the guy himself, which to me seemed a bit out of character. But then we don't really know the IRA directors that well. So uh, that part is a little bit weak, but I think it's really important in the way that the past is catching up to him, much in a way like A History of Violence from David Cronenberg is also about um, characters from the past coming back and trying to reconcile who you are. I think it's important that element is in there. Could have been developed a little bit better, but I still thought it was an incredibly strong film and uh, one that's really stayed in my mind in the 24 hours since watching it. I really appreciate the crying game for the shift in direction it takes after the, the first third of the story. 
as Clem said, it, it starts out as one thing and then it completely flips the audience's expectations. And I love films that, that do this. Um, you could kind of compare it to uh, when Chris mentioned uh, From Dust Till Dawn earlier in the podcast and how he mentioned that it starts as one thing and then just goes into a completely different film. And I always appreciate films like that. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention about it, which I, I think was quite interesting to hear, was that Time magazine critic Richard Corliss, he gave away the film's twist in his review with quite a subtle clue. So when he wrote his review, he worked it out so that the first letter of each paragraph spelled out the phrase, she is a he. And then at the end of his first paragraph, he uses the line, only the meanest critic would give that away, at least initially. It's also a little bit interesting because it is, in one way, the opposite of what the film is going for, in that by the end of the film, Stephen Ray's character does actually accept her as a woman. You know, I thoroughly agree, Chris. I think it's a really uh, beautiful film and one that I th- I'm already thinking, well, maybe I'm undervaluing what it is. Uh, because I know the stuff with the IRA terrorists is a bit underdeveloped. I think in terms of how much it matters to the plot line, it's probably more important that we actually see that budding romance between the two main characters actually really feel for what they're going through. There's also one thing I'm a little surprised you didn't mention previously, which is that there's obviously two secrets in this film. One, which is obviously quite extreme, quite terrible, which is on the part of the Stephen Ray character, and that going into this romance originally, we are all uh, attached to what will happen with that reveal. It's actually a very good point, Chris, because before I started the podcast, I was discussing it with Tom and saying that the film reminded a bit of like Crimes and Misdemeanors. And without spoiling that, that's a Woody Allen film. Two characters do something very heinous, and one of them is a crime, one of them is a misdemeanor, but are they equally as bad? And the crying game sort of positions us that way. And with the uh, shock revealed, it initially seems at first that what Dill's doing is the uh, worst thing. However, it's actually not as shocking. The um, actual real bad thing about it is a secret that uh, Jimmy or Fergus is keeping by not telling Dill that he effectively let Dill's boyfriend be killed or through his negligence he got hit by a truck or a van or a tank. So you've got that real big secret there and really if we're looking at it, that should be the biggest secret in the plot. That should be the thing that we're most shocked about and thing that we should be most repelled about not being revealed because one of the key pieces of dialogue from Dill is that he thought he knew. She actually wasn't keeping any secrets in the first place. She just wasn't explicitly stating it, whereas the whole time until towards the end, the uh, Stephen Ree character is keeping some really big, serious secrets. I think it says a lot about film viewers. If they're going in, going, walls or twist or whatever, she's got a penis, whereas that's actually not the most shocking thing. The most shocking thing is that you can have this big romance with a person and still be pretty much lying to their face about how they met them and what happened with her boyfriend before the two of them ever met for the first time. That's such a good point as well, because she believes that these two characters knew each other so well, which they to an extent did, and she believed that you know, the Forrest Whitaker character had told him everything about her. So the fact that Stephen Ray's character is actually so surprised and repulsed must come, from a, must come as an extreme shock for Dilla as well. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's a very good point. And just to go back to what I was saying before, I think the film really does want us to sympathise with Dill. As I said before, we've got those shots where when he's throwing up or whatever, the camera's all on Dylan focusing it from her point of view. And I think we sort of do have to look at the film from her point of view and see that if anyone's the victim here, she is. It's uh, not Fergus. Uh, he's the one who's being lying and deceptive from the first place. And the film's sort of about him putting that part of his nature behind him and sort of realising his nature, that he actually wants to do selfless things like letting himself go to jail at the end, which is in his nature going back to that whole Scorpion story, which is still really resonating in my mind. Just to conclude on The Crying Game, I think it's an interesting film to, to talk about more in details because it shows two things we discussed in this podcast. The first thing being obviously the, the twist and the spoiler. And the second thing was something that else we mentioned about learning the context and the history surrounding a film before watching it. And I, I have to confess I didn't do that, but maybe learning a bit more about transgender and uh, the IRA in the 90s could have maybe influenced the way I uh, watched uh, the film, maybe understand a bit more how society was back then and uh, how uh, tolerant uh, people were, let's say, to uh, towards uh, transgender people and also learn a bit more about uh, the Irish conflict, let's say the IRA and uh, everything surrounding it. I think we're nearing the end of the podcast now, so maybe uh, the three of you could just really quickly summarize your experience of knowing the twist and how it affected you. And if you learned anything from watching a film almost specifically with this purpose in mind, to um, conclude this uh, episode, yeah, I think it was a uh, very interesting at first hearing about uh, trailers. As I said, I'm not uh, not a fan of of them, but it was the first time people told me that they enjoy actually take enjoyment out of them. So it was very interesting hearing the the arguments about trailers and why they can be good and well made in some circumstances. My view on spoilers hasn't really changed after uh, after all this i still think that uh, i'll try to avoid spoilers whenever i can but uh, if someone spoils a film for me uh, I, I still think that there are a lot of things we can look for uh, in a film and the story is an important one of course but it's not primordial to go in completely blind story-wise i actually really loved watching the crying game knowing the twist because it was revealed so much earlier on than I was expecting, that in itself was, I get a bit of a twist already. What I really liked was being one step ahead of the Fergus or Jimmy character and knowing things that he didn't know himself. And like bartender says to him at one point, there's something you should know about her. And then he gets interrupted. So there's all these hints dropped along the way. But it was just very interesting watching Fergus get in over his head. I'm sort of going, oh, you know, when is he going to find out what's it going to be like? But because it took so long for him to find out, it actually got to the point where he was able to develop these real, very real romantic feelings for her. I actually didn't think knowing the twist spot at all. I think, if anything, it enhanced the film. And that's the same with, like, any of my favourite films. Like I've said before about the Scream franchise, and not just the first Scream, but the, some of the sequels also. I really love going into them and watching it, and I watch them almost on a yearly basis because I love the fact that 
as Craven drops all these hints of who Ghostface is. So we know, already said we're going to spoil Scream at the start of the podcast. So Billy and Stu are the killers in the original Scream. And re-watching it again and again, I pick up on all these subtle things, the way they look, the way they react to their friends talking. We actually can work on all those other killers. But the most fun thing about me, about it, fun thing about the Scream films for me, they're trying to work out who committed what murder because the biggest twist probably about Scream is that it's not just one killer. There's actually two people who are Ghostface. And that's really interesting. Going back and watching the thing, oh, is that Billy is doing that murder? Is that Stu? And it just makes the film so much more dynamic. And I felt the same thing with The Crying Game. I thought, this is a really dynamic film because I'm actually this one step ahead of the character, just like I was one step ahead of Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes. Makes it really interesting for me. Oh, I'd say, yeah, I do generally try and avoid spoilers. I do try and read up as little as possible. But I think with any good film, knowing the twist, knowing everything to come, can only actually make it better. I appreciated the chance to rewatch The Crying Game this week. I think that seeing it while knowing what the so-called twist is, the fact that Dill is a trans woman, helped me to focus on the strengths of the movie, which to me is the acting, especially the performances of Jay Davidson, Stephen Ray, and Horst Whitaker. That to me is the heart of the movie. And while the, the twist is very important narratively to the movie, I don't think it's very important to enjoying the movie. It's been fascinating to hear everyone's ideas on, on spoilers and how it makes them approach certain movies if, if they know information about them beforehand. I think that after this discussion, I'm still going to be as sensitive as ever to spoilers. I still like going in blind, although I thought it was great to hear from Clem that knowing a twist in a film isn't everything because you've also got to appreciate the other elements that come into play in the makeup of the film, the cinematography, the performances, etc. So perhaps when I hear spoilers in the future, although I'm not going to be pleased at hearing them, I'll perhaps be a, a little more open-minded with the fact that there are other things that I can uh, still appreciate from the film. I think that's a beautiful point. I hope our listeners will take that to heart when we next week will dive into the entirety of Eric, Romer's comedies and proverb cycle. I'm so excited about this. We'll discuss each of the six films in great detail, analyze them to the bone, and I really hope you'll be there to listen to it. So thank you all for listening and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com.